In Imperial Russia, back in the uh, 19th century, most Jewish people were forced to live in a designated area. It was called the Pale of Settlement. It was basically a way of removing Jews from the wider society, a kind of vast ghetto. Deborah Baum is a scholar at the University of Southampton. She's studied Jewish humour. She recounts an old joke from the Pale of Settlement which goes something like this. In Russia, two Jewish men, Moshe and Abram, are walking down the street complaining about being too poor to eat. They pass a church and outside is a sign that says, convert and we'll give you 10 rubles. Moshe looks at Abram and he says, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm so hungry. So he goes inside the church. And 20 minutes later, he emerges, looking solemn with his head bowed. Well, says Abram, did you do it? Did you get the 10 rubles? And Moshe looks at him and says, why is it you people only ever think about money? (laughs) Now, if you can see the funny side of that, it's because you understand something of the inner world of those Jewish people. The fact that they were stereotyped as stingy and obsessed with money. The fact that they were often poor and marginalised from the wider society. The fact that they were oppressed by a so-called Christian culture, which was not functioning in a truly Christian way at all. You can understand a Jewish joke if you understand something of the inner world of the Jewish people. Of course, once you've taken a joke apart like that and deconstructed it, it isn't that funny anymore. Now, we need to do something like this when we read Mark chapter 7. It's a strange passage at first. Half of it is to do with the dispute over what makes a person clean or unclean. Talking about whether you should wash your hands in a certain ritual way. So from verse 1 to 23, a debate is raised by a group called the Pharisees and some teachers of the law. They were religious lawyers. Now although this debate may seem very obscure to us, we must enter their world. We must pay close attention because Jesus seizes the the moment to give some of his most profound teaching. He gives us a profound analysis of the human condition and the human heart. And this analysis applies to all of us. It's not limited to the confines of a particular debate in the first century. Jesus, in effect, says that we are all defiled. We're all, the Bible uses the word elsewhere, depraved, pervasively, depravity. Evil, wickedness, goes right through our nature. And therefore, we need to be made clean, purified in the sight of a holy God. And that purification will not be accomplished by external observance of ritual practices like washing or doing various types of religious things. We need to change at heart level. We all do. And then in verse 24, the scene changes, and Jesus tries to lie low for a while. He goes to an area called Tyre. It's the place that we now uh, call Lebanon. But he has this strange encounter there with a local woman. She's not Jewish, it makes that very clear, she's a Greek. And her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit, demon possession. So from a first century Jewish point of view, this is about as dirty and grubby as you can get. Outside of Israel, dealing with Greek people, and one of them's possessed by an unclean spirit. And yet Jesus honours this woman's faith and welcomes her and delivers the girl, thereby making her clean. What's the second story doing? These things are put together with great care by the writer Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What's the second story doing? It's showing us that Jesus meant what he said about cleanness 
and uncleanness in the first passage. So it's vital for us to grasp this teaching today because I think it will transform our lives. It will transform our character. It will transform our religious practice. Because a correct diagnosis of your heart problem is, is the first thing you, do, you need before you seek the necessary treatment, isn't it? My prayer today is that we look into the mirror of God's word. We will see ourselves as we really are and stop pretending. And that we will turn to Jesus in desperate faith like that woman. And that we will find he's the one who can renew us and cleanse us in the deepest part of who we are, what the Bible calls our heart. And that later as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion together, it will be with fresh wonder and delight at what Jesus has done. Three brief points today. Firstly, the problem with religion. Secondly, the problem with the heart. And thirdly, the power of Jesus. The problem with religion. Let's just pick up the story again. At verse 3, <clears throat> the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have come around, around Jesus. They've come up from Jerusalem. It's a bit like an official delegation. And they're gathering around and they've got something to say. And it says in verse 3, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So they come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples do this? Now, why was all, what's the thing with all this washing? It's not simply a matter of hygiene. If you're a parent here, I'm sure you're constantly reminding your children to wash their hands and asking them, did you wash your hands with soap? when they come out of the bathroom in a public place or something like that. Now, these guys are not doing this because they're worried about germs and hygiene. They're worried about something actually more, more, more intense and more profound, which is the desire for holiness. They want the kingdom of God to come in their world, in their, their country. They're there under the oppression of the Roman rulers, and they think God will come back if only we're holy enough. If only we can keep the rules. And not just sort of keep them, but really go to the nth degree and the extra mile to show God that we're really serious about being his people. These guys are passionate about God coming back and ruling their world. And so they take what was normally limited to the priests in the Old Testament, the ceremonial washing of the hands at certain times. But they then apply it to everyone. Let's all do this all the time and maybe then God will be pleased with our holiness and come back. The other thing they're doing is guarding the boundaries of their identity. Cultures that are under pressure from outside, cultures that feel under threat, often have ways of marking the boundaries. Shows who's in and who's out. So for them to, to emphasise the distinctive things about being Jewish, like ceremonial washing of hands, is a way of saying, we're Jewish, we're here, we're different, we're not losing who we are. We're not losing our identity, even though we are under the rule of the Romans. Now this washing that they have is based, in verse 5 it says, on the tradition of the elders, a respected, time-honoured tradition in their culture. Now this was not required by the Bible itself, but it was a tradition that had been built around the Bible's requirements to, as a kind of fence to make sure that everyone's trying to be holy. So they come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Now, at first sight, that seems like a fairly reasonable question, doesn't it? I mean, is there, is there any sort of hidden agenda there? 
On the surface, no. But what they're really doing is trying to shame Jesus in a public forum. They come and ask the question in front of a load of people, and using this means, they seek to discredit him as a public teacher and damage his reputation. We know that these guys are dead set against Jesus. The last time they appeared in Mark was in chapter 3, verse 6. And there we discovered that they were so angry with him, they decided to plot to kill him. They got into bed with the Herodians, who were normally their natural enemies, in order to make a deal. Let's get this guy killed. So this isn't an innocent question. They're coming as part of an attempt to destroy Jesus and saying, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus sees this. And so he takes the moment and regains the higher ground, showing that he's the one who's really championing God's law, not them. And in verse 6, he launches really a a, a very fierce attack. Look what he says. He quotes the great prophet Isaiah in verse 6. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. For it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. What's a hypocrite? It's an actor. In the Greek world, this word was used of the kind of actor who would go on the theatre, on the stage, with one of those masks and play a part during the performance. And this is somebody who is different on the outside to how they are on the inside. Whatever they're projecting on the outside is not who they are inside. And you know, hypocrites in every generation wear such masks. Verse 7, Jesus launches this damning critique. You are holding on to human traditions, but you've actually held on to a human tradition with one hand and let go of the commands of God. People use traditions as a loophole to pretend that they're obeying God, but actually to disobey him. And in verse 9 to 12, he gives evidence for his claim, his argument. And he chooses an extreme example. It's something called Corban. It's a practice called Corban. Now, this was, Corban was a formula. It was like a dedication that people would use to say, I'm setting aside my property for God. And that meant that it barred the person from selling it to somebody else, gaining profit from it, or using it for any other purpose except for God. A person could dedicate all their property, their house and all their belongings to God, with a vow. They could say, Corban, it all belongs to him. And they could look so holy, but they weren't actually required to give any of their property to God. So you see how it's open to abuse. The legal experts found a way to use the tradition of Corban as a loophole like a clever tax accountant who finds a way to make someone avoid paying all income tax. The experts said this, if someone's declared their property belongs to God through Corban, they are free from obligations to their parents. Because God trumps your parents, right? Jesus says, hold on a minute, hang on here. You think because you made a vow of Corban that you can now ditch your parents? They're your parents. They brought you into this world. They made all sorts of sacrifices to bring you up. They poured out their life for you for years and years. They gave you the start that you needed. And God's law enshrines our responsibility to our parents. 
In the Ten Commandments themselves, the first commandment that comes with a promise, honour your father and mother. There's no loopholes there. This is a commandment for all time, for all humanity. We're all under this. God requires of humanity that we honour our father and mother. No matter what they do, no matter how they failed you, no matter how disappointed you are in them, no matter how offended you are by their latest antics over Christmas, no matter how they oppose your faith, you still have to honour them. Not necessarily obey, but you have to give them honour. Now how could somebody use supposed religious practice to avoid their duty to their own parents? Easy. If you resent your parents they've offended you in some way or if you're just so self-centered that you don't want to sacrifice your own comfort for the sake of your parents what a convenient way out of a fundamental obligation Corbin you know what this is this is a despicable example of God talk God talk is where you have a real reason for something but you don't say what it is you cover up your real reason with some mealy-mouthed God talk. Christians do this. Here's an example. When we say, we've been praying about this, and we feel that God is leading us to do X, when the truth is closer to this, we're really angry about this, and we've decided to do X, so stuff you. We don't say that. We say, we've been praying about it, and God told us not to do it. Really, we mean, stuff you. If we do this, then we too are hypocrites. You see the problem here? It's the problem of religion. It starts out with good intentions, as the Pharisees did. It recognises that human beings aren't what they should be, moral failures. They need purity, yes, yes, yes. They need cleanliness, yes, okay, so far. And then it locates the solution somewhere outside in some human tradition. Now, the tradition isn't necessarily bad in itself, But it invariably tends, because of our nature, to four problems. Elitism, fossilization, violation, and loopholes. Firstly, elitism. Those who are keeping the rules and the regulations, and know what they are, feel superior to the people who don't. It feeds their pride. And pride is the worst thing about you. And let me tell you something, you're all proud. Some people are proud by being very arrogant and conceited and obviously proud. Some people are proud just by their relentless concentration upon themselves. Some people who are so always down on themselves and how I'm so rubbish and how worthless I am, they're so focused on themselves that is a sign that they are proud. If you ever to meet a really humble person, you wouldn't notice them at all. They'd just be really cheerful and interested in you. We're all infected with pride. Don't think you're not. If you're not aware of it, it means it's gone under. It's there. Jonathan Edwards said, pride is the inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit. So you can see the problem with any kind of rule and regulation that feeds your pride, can't you? My word. Elitism. Secondly, fossilization. What? Yes. When something gets left in the ground for long enough, it becomes a fossil. 
I know it takes a long time. Any human tradition that is observed for long enough gets frozen in time. And people keep on doing it years after it was relevant. You find this in churches all the time. You get this irrelevant tradition that's quite weird now, but people still do it and hold on to it. A particular practice becomes sacred. So the principle of obeying God is forgotten about. We're all about concerned about this practice that we have. It's now fossilised. Third problem, violation. Our traditions have a way of making us want to enforce our religious practices in a way that violates other people. Now, the most obvious and extreme examples of this are religions that will kill or maim someone who tries to leave the faith. A friend of mine leads a church in Loughborough. Loughborough, East Midlands. They they know people who have carried out honour killings within their family. They've killed someone in the family who tried to become a Christian. This is in Loughborough. Well, we all know about radicalised people who identify there is impurity. Okay, that's true. And they conclude that the way to deal with purity is to bomb it. But, you know, violation, taking our rules and violating other people, can take much subtler forms. When I was a young boy and a teenager, uh, I was brought up in a conservative church, and our church frowned on smoking really frowned on it. Now, you know the Bible doesn't actually say anything about smoking. And you can make a pretty good case that smoking's bad for you, can't you? We, we know this from research and studies, and that actually, if you want to take care of your body, you're best not to smoke cigarettes. But I, as a young Christian, had taken this position about smoking, and I, I, uh, I took it to another level, in that I would judge another person's faith or even whether they were in or out of the Christian church, based on whether they smoked or not. This is, if you think about it, quite a strange thing to do. I remember going to university and going to a church, and there was a a lovely old man who was a deacon at that church. He used to stand on the door and greet people and welcome them in. He was an old working-class guy from the area. And one time I saw Ernie smoking outside the church. And it turned out that Ernie smoked for years and had a problem, couldn't, just couldn't quit it. And I said to a friend of mine, do you know, I don't think Ernie's a Christian. <laughs> it is laughable and embarrassing to say it, but you see how our application of God's truth can lead us to violate somebody else. How judgmental. Fourth problem, loopholes. Here's the, the most perverse thing about this. Ironically, our traditions can end up, we can use them to legitimise breaking God's commands. Uh, An example, speech. Some Christians will never swear. They will never use bad language, but their speech is regularly abrasive, critical, harsh, judgmental, and inclined to gossip about other people. They won't swear, but look what they've done with their speech. Another example, giving. The Bible exhorts us to be generous with what we have, to give to the poor, and to support our local church financially. In the Old Testament, there was a practice known as tithing, which meant you gave 10%. That practice isn't repeated in the New Testament. The New Testament actually requires more. 
Not that you give just 10%, but that you give freely of all you have, generously and cheerfully. That you tithe to the point of it being a sacrifice to you. Jesus Christ did not tithe his blood for you on the cross. He didn't give you just 10%. But what we do is we set aside a certain portion of money every month, and off it goes to stewardship or in that wooden box over there, and we congratulate ourselves that we've given sacrificially. And then we get a pay rise or a bonus or somebody gives us some money. And guess what? We forget all about giving as we gleefully think about how to spend it on ourselves. We haven't really satisfied the heart of what God's asking of us. Third example. Pornography. Over the last 20 years, I've talked to numerous men about pornography. And uh, some of them have asked me to become their accountability partner. They've installed some software on the computer, and then I get a report on their internet viewing that week, every week. Some years ago, I knew a guy, not at this church, who, in his accountability reports, never once looked at anything unclean or pornographic. Never once. He had an extramarital affair. <laughs> so we're keeping clean on, the, on the, tr- the tradition of the accountability software. Meanwhile, the heart was very far from what God requires. Another guy said to me, I could get the, the software installed, but I know a way around it. So I'm not going to do that. If you have a habit of keeping really clean on certain types of lustful thought, but indulging others to your heart's content, then you're a Pharisee. That's Pharisee porn. Fourth example. Our devotion to God. Uh, Again, when I was growing up, we were taught to have a time of prayer and Bible reading every day. It was known, probably a bit quaint, as the quiet time. We were taught in our youth group as teenagers, have a quiet time every day. Read God's word, the Bible, and pray. So I had my quiet time, dutifully. I'm an oldest child of a pastor, so I'm very dutiful. I had my quiet time. I had a Sony Walkman, which was an early example of a portable music device, with headphones and a tape. It was a thing before MP3s. A tape of a band called Iron Maiden. Uh, I used to listen to Iron Maiden while I was doing my quiet time. I was still doing the quiet time. I had no intention of communing with God. I was just ticking the box. You know, you can read your Bible all year long and never actually meet God. It's all about the heart. Is there an area of your life, friends, brothers, sisters, where you are currently hypocritical? You are different on the outside than you are on the inside. You're putting this mask on, but really in the heart, you're not seeking to obey, please, and love God. The problem of religion is this. It doesn't go deep enough. Mere religion correctly sees that human beings are moral failures and need cleaning up, but it incorrectly assumes that certain traditions and practices bolt them on and they'll deal with it. They won't. In fact, they often make things worse. Because of elitism, fossilisation, violation and our incessant ability to create loopholes. 
Terry Eagleton is a well-known uh, scholar and uh, professor of literary theory. Terry Eagleton is not a Christian, uh, but he's thought deeply about religion. And he says at the beginning of his book, Reason, Faith and Revolution, religion has wrought untold misery in human affairs. For the most part, it has been a squalid tale of bigotry, superstition, wishful thinking, and oppressive ideology. And you know what? I'm a fully paid-up member of the God Squad. I'm a pastor of an evangelical church. I have to say, amen, Terry. You're right. You're absolutely right. Religion has brought untold misery. But that doesn't mean that we just have to ditch Christianity. What we need is true deep Christianity, which will change us at heart level. We need to go deeper if we're to understand ourselves and not be left as hypocrites, even atheistic hypocrites. And Jesus takes us there in the next part of this passage, in verse 14 to 23. He unpacks what he's been saying and he explains the problem with the heart. Here it is in verse 14. Jesus calls the crowd to him and he says, listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Here's the principle. Not what goes in, but what comes out defiles. And in verse 18 to 19, he unpacks it further to his disciples, because they still haven't got it, because this is so radical. He says, look guys, are you so dull? Don't you see? Nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them. It doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. You know, that's a very polite translation. The young teenage boys will enjoy this. Jesus actually says, it goes into the toilet. Jesus is talking about poo. He says, of course, what comes into you doesn't defile you just goes through your tummy and out. Bye-bye. And then there's a little aside in verse 19. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. This is, this is like something the writer just threw a grenade into the room and closed the door. Oh, <laughs> he declared all foods clean. An entire culture had been built on some foods being unclean. Jewish people had died for their refusal to eat unclean food. There were stories circulating at this time of heroic Jews who were placed under pressure by wicked pagans and tr- who tried to force them to eat pork. And the Jews refused and were killed. They were martyred for their, their faith. They would not eat the unclean food. And Jesus, Jesus basically says, yeah, all foods are clean. Because the, the rules about clean and unclean food are a signpost. They're pointing to a deeper reality. That we are unclean and we need to be made clean and we need to figure out how to get there. And now that Jesus is here, you don't need the signpost anymore. It's done a good job. It showed you where to look. Now we've got Jesus. We don't need clean and unclean food laws. How can we really be made clean at source? You know, once again, we love to focus on the externals. People love a good rule, regulation, and they ignore the deeper dimension of the heart, the motivational centre of who you are. You can do all the right things. And if you've been brought up in in a, a Christian family, you know what to do. You can do all the right things and at the same time 
the, the well, the wellsprings of your heart are poisoned at the source. The people here are only concerned with surface impurity. Jesus is concerned about internal impurity. And it doesn't go away by washing your hands, friends. Verse 20, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them. And just in case we haven't got that, he gives some really uncomfortable examples. Verse 21 to 22. The moral law of the Old Testament was summed up in a summary statement. We call it the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. And here it is, still used as a New Testament standard. Jesus gives a whole range of examples that really draw on what's called the second table of the law. The second part of the Ten Commandments. The sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Jesus says, verse 21, murder. Murder, the actual action of physical harm. Verse 22, slander is to harm somebody with your words. By putting them down, by talking to someone else in such a way that you kill that other person's character. Verse 22, malice, the vicious motive of just mean ill will towards somebody else. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 21, sexual immorality. This refers to any sexual activity outside of heterosexual lifelong marriage. It's sexual immorality. Adultery, in verse 21, is specifically unfaithfulness to one's spouse. But what about lewdness? Verse 22. You know, we don't even use the word lewd anymore. We're so used to it. Lewdness is a whole mindset of sexual impurity. It's the mindset of porn, which pervades our culture now at every level. Lewdness, which stains so much of advertising, which corrupts the way people speak and look at particularly at women. A whole mindset of sexual impurity that leads to an immoral life. Lewdness, Jesus brings in, it comes out of your heart. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Verse 21, theft, to unjustly usurp the rights of another person over their possessions by taking it from them by force. Verse 22, envy. Now you might not steal, but you do envy. Resenting somebody else for having what you don't have. It's wishing not only that you had it, but that they would lose it. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. Verse 22, deceit. Deceiving or misleading anyone. Robbing them of the truth that they deserve as God's image bearer. The tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Evil thoughts in verse 21 refers to a whole attitude of life. An attitude of discontent with what I've got and who I am. An attitude of self-pity with the limitations of your life. An evil thought. It holds stance toward life that leads you to all these other things. Violence and impurity and theft and dishonesty. So Jesus concludes in verse 23. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Do you see anything of yourself in the mirror today? I hope you do because if you don't you are terribly deluded you see the evil in your life yeah some of it comes from outside but the fountain of who you are is polluted at source the well is poisoned you are defiled from within we are all condemned by this you know all of us this truth was summarized many years ago in some incredible words in the general confession of the church of england here it is 
Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. There is no health in us. We're not whole people. Jesus concludes, all these evils come from inside and defile you. Listen, have you realised this about yourself? It's a new year. Maybe you've looked back on the last year. Have you, have you looked inside and seen who you really are? Have you been brought to your senses spiritually? If so, what are you depending on today? Are you still depending on your own efforts to try a bit harder this year and be a decent person? Can't you see how bankrupt it is? Where is your confidence before a holy God whose all-seeing eye leaves no stone unturned, who knows everything? Please don't rely on anything less than the blood of Jesus Christ which washes from every stain and sin. So we've seen the problem with religion. We've seen the attempt to treat a cancerous ulcer by sticking a plaster over it. That's the problem with religion. We've traced the flow of poison down to its source, the problem with the heart. We at source are pervasively depraved. It comes out of you. And that must bring us to our knees. But there is a better place to look than within. Yes, look within for a bit. See what you are. But then don't stop there. Look out and look to Jesus Christ. Final point, the power of Jesus. Verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and didn't want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek. Born in Syrian Phoenicia, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. This Friday, I was in the children's hospital in Manchester, one of our sons, for half a day in the short stay ward. And there were a couple of other children in there with their mothers. And uh, I got chatting to one of them. And the mother told me that her daughter, who was a keen swimmer, caught an ear infection. She was very prone to them. But on this occasion, the ear infection went right into the bone. I said, how did you know that? She said, well, the daughter seemed okay, but I could smell this rotten smell. I knew something wasn't right. It was coming out of her ear. It was the smell of death. So she took her to the hospital and they said, we're glad you came in because this can lead to meningitis and all sorts of other problems got her onto a strong course of antibiotics. The smell of death, infection of the bone. Now, in the children's hospital, everywhere you go, at, with every, at, beside every door, is a machine with hand sanitizer in. So you can wash your hands with soap and water and then sanitize them, and this stuff kills 99.8% of all germs in the world, or something. Do you think I was hand sanitizing that day? I mean, everywhere I went, I was hand sanitising. My hands were so clean by the time I came out, you could have eaten your dinner off. 
We, we all have an idea of clean and unclean, don't we? A friend of mine who was brought up in Pakistan as a devout Muslim, now a follower of Jesus, if he goes to the, to the loo, he feels the need to wash his entire body or he still feels unclean. That's how he was brought up, clean and unclean. I remember some years ago visiting a Dutch family at their home and outside they had the washing line and on the washing line were a whole row of little cloth gloves, like little mittens, all white, all lined up. I said, what are they? Oh, well, we, use, well, we use them when we shower. What? Yeah, yeah, you put them on your hands when you're cleaning yourself in the shower. And they looked at me a little bit horrified and said, you don't wash yourself with your hands, do you? <laughs> Clean and unclean. What about food hygiene? I've seen many restaurants in Manchester with a food hygiene sticker in the window that says four or five stars. I've never seen one that said zero or one, but you know there's more than a hundred such takeaways. There's a great article on it in the MEN if you want to look that up later and find out that your, your favourite takeaway got zero on food. We do care about clean and unclean when it comes to restaurants, don't we? I think so. We all care about clean and unclean. Now, verse 25 signals to the Jewish readers of the first century, unclean. Ew. You know that ugh, kind of... Ugh. Accidentally touch that nappy. Ugh. They see this. This woman is a Greek. All oh, right, she's really yeah. yeah. Don't wash properly, and she lives in Syrophoenicia in Tyre. She lives out in this pagan place that's unclean. The territory is unclean. Even the ground's unclean. And if that wasn't unclean enough, her daughter has an unclean spirit. So this is like Mrs. Unclean who lives in Uncleanville. And she comes to Jesus, but she comes with such tenacity and such humility. You know, Jesus Christ was sent primarily, his focus of his mission was to Israel. He didn't actually come to reach us Gentiles, most of us here. He didn't come for us. He sent his disciples to do that later. But the priority for Jesus was to bring God's kingdom to Israel, to wake them up, to tell them the kingdom was at hand, and to show them how the kingdom's tensions would all be resolved by his work. So Jesus says, in a a moment of possibly what we would call banter, well, let the children eat all they want, because Israel were God's special children. The Jewish nation were privileged above all others. They had the covenants from God. They were God's treasured possession, his children. Let the children eat all they want. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs which is what Jewish people describe Gentiles as, dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table get to eat some crumbs. See how she takes the banter, turns it back on him? I'm not going to argue with you, Jesus. I may just be a dog. Just give me a crumb. (laughs) Just give me the crumb. And Jesus loves the reply. And he says, you know what? For such a reply, for such faith, Your daughter is healed, and from that moment the demon leads. What's the meaning of the story? Why did Mark put it here? This story is a sign that Jesus meant what he said about clean and unclean. Everything's changed now that he is here. All the old taboos and the old barriers that divide human beings one from another, one tribe from another, one so-called race from another, are being swept away by Jesus. 
The dogs under the table are now sharing the children's bread, but very soon they will cease to be dogs and become children alongside the others. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, everything will change. Because at the cross, the King of the Jews became the saviour of the world. At the cross, the pure and holy one became sin for us. The one who didn't know sin became sin for us so that through him we could become the righteousness of God. We could be found spotless and holy in God's sight because of Jesus. So the way to be made clean at that deep level is not by trying your best this year, but by trusting Jesus Christ this year. By putting aside your false hopes in yourself and resting your hope on him and asking him in the simplest possible way, Lord, will you forgive me? Come to him like the woman did. Just give me a crumb. A piece of your crosswork for me, Lord. And he will not turn you away. There's no need for ritual washing now. Clean and unclean laws, making sacrifices. Jesus has made the one and only sacrifice that's ever going to be needed, and he made it for us. He's the perfect sacrifice. We don't need to go to a temple and make sacrifices anymore. Here he is. He offers us himself. And today, we take bread and wine in memory of his sacrifice. His body broken. His blood shed. His life poured out for you. As he was rejected by God the Father and became an offering of atonement for us. To make us one with God. The story of the woman shows what we need. Desperate faith in Jesus. And shows us his power and his willingness to hear you. Maybe there's someone here who knows they've never really trusted Jesus. And today's the day. Will you do it? Will you cross the line? And if you do, I'd love to talk to you later and pray with you. Let's pray.